In the Western world, I suppose we have two dominant ideas about what happens to us when we die. There's the old-fashioned idea that after we die, we go to another world. I say old-fashioned, not to say it's out of date. We don't know what the answer to this is. But that's the traditional answer of the Western world. When you die, you go to another life. Maybe heaven, maybe purgatory, maybe hell. Who knows? I think nowadays, though, the more general idea, the more plausible idea to many people, is that when we die, we just cease to be. That's all there is to it. But we're inclined, I think, to have in our minds a picture of this, which indeed is depressing, of being shut up in the dark for always and always and always. To be kind of buried alive in a blackness, where we are blind, deaf and dumb, but somehow still conscious. world, there are different ideas of this. Think of it in this way. Supposing I make two statements. Statement one, after I die, I shall be reborn again as a baby, but I shall forget my former life. Statement two, after I die, a baby will be born. Now, I believe that those two statements are saying exactly the same thing.
is not the end of consciousness. If we think of death as endless darkness, endless nothingness is not only inconceivable, but it's logically absolutely meaningless. Because we aren't able to have any idea, much less sensation of nothing, unless it can be compared with a sensation of something. And therefore, I think what is meant is that the vacuum created by the disappearance of a being, by the disappearance of his memory system, is simply filled by another being, who is I, just as you feel you are I. about being I is that you can only experience this I sensation in the singular. You can't experience being two or three eyes all at the same time. Now then, 
It seems to me that this idea has very important consequences. One is that the disappearance of our memory in death is not really something to be regretted. Of course, everybody wishes to hold forever to the memories and to the people and the situations that he particularly loves. But surely, if we think this through, is that what we actually want? Do we really want to have those we love, however greatly we love them, for always and always and always and always? Isn't it inconceivable that even in a very distant future, we wouldn't get tired of it? And this indeed is the secret of the thing. This is why the demon of impermanence is denounced. Because it is forgetting about things that renews their wonder. Just think, when you opened your eyes on the world for the first time as a child, how brilliant colors were. What a jewel the sun was. What marvels the stars. How incredibly alive the trees were. That's all because they were new to your eyes. Or in the same way you know how it is you've been reading a mystery story. And uh, you're looking around the house, you want something to read, you pick up an old mystery story. If you read it years and years ago and you've forgotten all about the plot, it still excites you. But if you remember the plot, it doesn't excite you. And so by the dispensation of forgetting, the world is constantly renewed. And we are able to see it again and again, and to love again and again, to have people to whom we are deeply attached and deeply fond, always with renewed intensity and without the contrast of having seen them before, 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 for always and always and always. Another consequence of this is a very curious realization to me. Who would I be if my mother had married someone else? These are the kind of questions that make us puzzle profoundly about our existence. 
I might so easily have been born in China and India. Why do I feel that the world is centered in this place, as distinct from some other place? In other words, you jolly well know the world is centered where you are. There is consciousness anywhere, that is I. You then, in a way, look out through all eyes. And that, perhaps, is the secret of the great virtue of compassion. When your own inner sense of identity changes from being the separate individual to being what the entire cosmos is doing at this place, you become not a puppet, but more truly and more expressively an individual than ever.
Well, now do you see the point? That everybody, if we transfer this to the dimension of spirituality, where the highest ideal is to be unselfish, to let go of oneself, when you are trying to be unselfish, you're doing it for a selfish reason. You can't be unselfish by a decision of the will any more than you can decide not to think of a green elephant. There is a story about Confucius, who one day met Lao Tzu, who was a great Chinese philosopher. And Lao Tzu said, Sir, what is your system? And Confucius said, uh, it is charity and love of one's neighbor and elimination of self-interest. Lao Tzu said, stuff and nonsense. Your elimination of self is a positive manifestation of self. Look at the universe. The stars keep their order. The trees and plants grow upwards without exception. The waters flow. Be like this. All your nonsense about elimination of self is like beating a drum in search of a fugitive. arrive on the first floor, the thieves have gone up to the second, and so to the third, and finally out to the roof. And so when the ego is about to be unmasked, 
it immediately identifies with the higher self. It goes up a level. studying Zen in Japan and he got pretty desperate to produce the answer of who he really is. And on his way to an interview with the master to give an answer to the problem, he noticed a very common sight in Japan, a big bullfrog sitting around in the garden. And he swooped this bullfrog up in his hand and dropped it in the sleeve of his kimono. And then he went into the master and to give the answer of who he was, he suddenly produced the bullfrog. And the master said, mm -mm, too intellectual. <laughs> yeah. In other words, this answer is too contrived. It's too much like Zen. <laughs> You've been reading too many books. <laughs> it's not the genuine thing. So after a while, you see, what happens is this. The student finds that there is absolutely no way of being his true self. There's also no way of doing it by not doing it.
Let me, to make this clearer, put it into Christian terms. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Now what are you going to do about that? If you try very hard to love God and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? You find out you're doing it because you want to be on the side of the big battalions. You want to be right. After all, the Lord is the master of the universe, isn't he? If you don't love him, you're going to be in a pretty sad state. So you realize I'm loving him just because I'm afraid. lousy love isn't it and you think I, I, that's a bad motivation I wish I could change that I wish I could love the Lord out of a genuine heart but why do you want to change uh -uh. <clears throat> see I realize that the reason I want to have a different kind of motive is that I've got the same motive So I say, oh, heaven's sakes, God, 
I'm a mess. And uh, will you help me out? Then he reminds you why you why you doing that. Now you're you're just you're just giving up, aren't you? You're asking someone else to take over your problem. So you suddenly find you see you're stuck. So in this way, what is called the Zen problem, or koan, is uh, likened to a person who swallowed a ball of red-hot iron. He can't gulp it down and he can't spit it out. And so nothing can happen. Absolutely no answer to this problem. No way out. Now what does that mean? If I can't do the right thing, by doing, and if I can't do the right thing by not doing, what does it mean? It means, of course, that I, who essayed to do all this, am a hallucination. same paradox which the Christian knows in the form whosoever would save his soul shall lose it now I think that this is something of very great importance to the Western world today because 
we have developed an immensely powerful technology. We have stronger means of changing the physical universe than has ever existed before. How are we going to use it? There is a Chinese proverb that if the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. Let us assume that our technological knowledge is the right means. What kind of people are going to use this knowledge? Are they going to be people who hate nature and feel alienated from it? Or people who love the physical world and feel that the physical world is their own personal body? An extension, the whole physical universe right out to the galaxies is simply one's extended body. Now at the moment the general attitude of our technolo technologists who are exploring space is represented in the term the conquest of space and they are building enormous shell-like phallic objects to go into the sky.
This is downright ridiculous. Who is going to get anywhere in a rocket? It takes a terrible long time even to get to the moon. And it's going to take longer than anybody can live to get outside the solar system, just to begin with. The proper way to study space is not with rockets, but with radio astronomy. Instead of going bang, you know, with a tough fist at the sky, become more sensitive. contrast between man and nature, and you classify nature as being perfectly stupid and automatic, whereas all intelligence resides in man. And therefore, uh, boys, you've got to roll up your sleeves and fight this uh, system, and uh, make it accord with the human will. Well, all you've said by saying that is, I'm a tough kind of a guy. It's really what it comes down to. And I'm not pushed over by, by woolly ideas. On the other hand, if you uh, can look at it from a completely opposite point of view and you say, uh, well, this whole world is uh, an enormous intelligence. It's a great conscious being and I'm one of its operations. And uh, really, uh, then I've said the other end of the stick, I've put everything up. Uh, you see, the, the people who are tough believe that reality is in the direction of mineral. And the people who are enthusiastic about the universe believe that the more biological or indeed mental end of things is more basic than the geological.
we can put geology down here and say that's the fundamental thing and everything else has grown up on it. Or you can put consciousness up here and say, well, everything descended from consciousness into the domain of geology. And it depends sort of on a psychic mood as to which one you prefer, because there is no way of verifying either. Both, you see, are gestures. in the sense of myth being an image used to make sense of the world. So then, we today are under the very, very strong domination of the tough guy myth. This became plausible in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and uh, at a time when Western civilization was dominating the rest of the world. It was one of the motivating forces, there were several, in feeling that we had demonstrable superiority beyond all other people. We had succeeded the most through our technological skill in pushing the world around and everybody else ought to submit to these benefits. And this is still a basic premise of American politics, or rather a justification of it. It, of course, is a historical uh, descendant of our former spiritual imperialism, that we had the best religion, even without knowing anything about other people's religions. We knew already that we had the true one. <laughs>
most amusing discussion some time ago with a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, he said, uh, don't you think if there were a God and he really loved and was concerned for the human race, that he would provide us with an infallible textbook in which we would be able to find out the truth and know what was right and wrong. Implying, of course, that the Bible was this book. I said, oh dear me, no. Uh, a God who loved the human race would never ruin their minds with any such document. Because, after all, if you have a document which tells you what to do, you don't need to use your intelligence. Then, <laughs> but he says, you know, there's the Bible in it. The Bible is true. I said, that's your opinion. He said, my opinion? quite sure that somewhere in all these efforts that go round and round there's an answer and the problem uh, which is requiring an answer is of course uh, can I defeat the universe can I as ego escape from suffering can I somehow or other beat the game and not have to take black along with white and darkness along with light? So when he has been involved in disciplines and attempts, all of which are designed to bring this nonsense goal about, he discovers empirically that it can't be done. that he has posed himself a problem about which he can't do anything and also about which he can't do nothing and he arrives at total frustration and so he asks what is the meaning of this what does it mean that I have got into this state well obviously it dawns at last that the meaning was he was asking the wrong question <laughs> He had construed the whole thing in a way that only went round in a circle.
So in the same way, when we look at the history of philosophy, and moreover, at the history of civilizations expressing various philosophical and religious myths, we see again the circle. That they are all, as it were, in a prison. The prison being the human situation. We are all organisms of a certain kind. And anything that we do will bear our style. There's no way out of that. Even if you describe nature as red in tooth and claw and utterly careless of man, that's a human poetic way of thinking about things. I'm sure tigers don't think of themselves as red in tooth and claw. They probably think they're very genteel pussycats. You know, in the history of philosophy, there are really three theories of nature. The first theory is the Western theory, which is that nature is a machine or an artifact. Our tradition has been to look upon the world as a construct, and somebody knows how it was put together. Somebody understands. And that is the constructor, the architect, the Lord God. But it so happened that in the 18th century, Western thought began to change. They became increasingly doubtful as to whether there was a maker, whether there was a God. But they continued to look upon the creation as an artifact, as a machine.
When you go to the hospital for a medical examination, you are treated as a machine. They process you. You're not a person. You're put in a wheelchair immediately. Even if you're perfectly healthy and can walk, nevertheless they have to have you in this wheelchair. And they put you through a process. And the heart specialist looks only at your heart because he can't understand anything else. The otorhinolaryngologist, which means an ear, nose and throat man, looks at that section of you and he doesn't know about anything else. And maybe a psychiatrist takes a look at you and uh, goodness knows what happens there. And so on and so on. Everybody looks at you from their specialized point of view as if they were a bunch of mechanics examining your automobile. Now let me take a second theory of nature. This is an Indian theory. Nature not as an artifact but as drama. Basic to all Hindu thought is the idea that the world is Maya, which means many things. It means magic, illusion, art, play. All the world's a stage. And in the Hindu idea, there is the ultimate reality of the universe is the self, which they call Brahman or Atman. That's what there is. The self, universal, eternal, boundless, indescribable. And all of us share this self in common because it is pretending to be all of us. does it for unspeakably long periods of time. The Hindus measure time in what is called a kalpa, K-A-L-P-A. That's 4,320,000 years. It's not meant to be taken literally. But just for an unspeakably long time, the Brahman, the self, pretends that it's lost and is us. And all our adventures and all our troubles and all our agonies and tragedies, it gets mixed up in them.
Then after the period of 4,320,000 years has elapsed, there is a catastrophe. The universe is destroyed in fire. And after that, the Brahman wakes up and says, well, good, crazy, what, a, what an adventure that was. He wipes the sweat off his brow and says, let's rest a while. So for another 4,320,000 years, the divine self rests and knows who it is. It's me. Then it says, well, this is rather boring. Let's get going again. Let's get mixed up. And it does it in a very strange way because uh, the way the Hindus time it, the first period of getting mixed up, getting lost, is beautiful. Everything's right. It's just life is glorious. has the next period in which things get a little wonky. Something is a, vaguely out of order. That doesn't last so long. Then the next period, the third, is when good and evil are equally balanced. And that's still not so long. Finally comes the shortest period when everything bad triumphs and the whole thing blows up and we begin all over again. We're supposed to be living in that now. It's what's called the Kali Yuga. The age of darkness. And it began on Friday, February the 23rd, 3123 BC. And it has 5,000 years to run. But as it goes on, time gets faster, so don't worry. <laughs> See, that's a theory of nature as a drama. It's a play.
Now there's a third theory of nature, which is Chinese. And this is very interesting. The Chinese word for nature, they call Zizhan. And this expression means of itself so. What happens of itself. Spontaneity. means automatic because automatic is what is self-moving only we associate the word automatic with machinery but Ziran what is of so of itself is associated in the Chinese mind not with machinery but with biology your hair grows by itself you don't have to think how to grow it your heart beats by itself, you don't have to make up your mind how to beat it. That's what they mean by nature. The poem says, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and grass grows of itself. Their principle of nature is called the Tao, T-A-O, pronounced Tao in the Mandarin dialect, Tao in the Shanghai dialect, To in the Cantonese dialect. Take your choice.
Tao means the course of nature. And Lao Tzu, who was a philosopher who lived a little later than 400 BC, wrote a book about the Tao. And he said, the Tao which can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. You can't describe it. He said the principle of the Tao is spontaneity. He said the great Tao flows everywhere, both to the left and to the right. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. It accomplishes merits and lays no claim to them. does not act as a boss. In the Chinese philosophy of nature, nature has no boss. There is no principle that forces things to behave the way they do. It is a completely democratic theory of nature. Correspondingly, you see, most Westerners, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, don't trust nature. Nature is the thing least to be trusted. You must manage it. You must watch out for it. It will always go wrong if you don't watch out. You know, the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. So we're always feeling 
that you, you can't trust it. See, we're absolutely instilled with the idea of original sin. You can't trust nature because it comes out with weeds and insects. And above all, you can't trust human nature because if you don't hold a club over yourself, you'll go out and rape your grandmother. You're gonna trust me. We don't have to, you know, you don't have to do anything, you don't have to go on living. But it's a great idea, it's a great thing, if you can learn what the Chinese call purposelessness. They think nature is purposeless. When we say something's purposeless, that's put down. No future in it. The washout. But when they hear the word purposeless, they think that's just great. It's like the waves washing against the shore. Going on and on and on forever. There's no meaning. birds in the trees go what's it all about everybody tries to say oh it's a mating call purposely have to get their mate Engineering view of the universe. <laughs> why do that? They say, well, it's because they need to survive. Or why survive? What's that for? Well, to survive. And they say, well, that's terribly serious. That's awfully important. We've got to keep on doing this. <laughs> 
Now, when Chinese say nature is purposeless, this is a compliment. It's like the idea of the Japanese have a, a word, uh, yugen, and they describe yugen as watching wild geese fly and be hidden in the clouds, as wandering on and on in a great forest with no thought of return. Haven't you done this? Haven't you gone on a walk with no particular purpose in mind? Carry a stick with you and you occasionally hit at old stumps and wander along from time to twiddle your thumb. It's at that moment that you are a perfectly rational human being. Preachers used to say, when I was a small boy, I'd always hear it. We must follow God's purpose, his purpose for you and his purpose for me. When I asked these cats what the purpose was, they never never knew. They didn't know what it was. They had a hymn. God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. time when the earth shall be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What's the glory of God? Well, they weren't quite sure. I'll tell you what it is. In heaven, all those angels are gathered round the glory of God. That is to say, the witch than which there is no witcher. And they're standing around it and they're saying, Hallelujah, 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 Hallelujah. Means nothing. just having a ball. <laughs> See, that's what happened in the beginning. When God created the universe, it was created like all stars, all planets, all galaxies. They're vaguely spherical. He created this and he said, have a ball.
you do trust it, you may get let down. And this it is yourself, your own nature, and all nature around you. There are going to be mistakes. But if you don't trust it at all, you're going to strangle yourself. You're going to fence yourself round with rules and regulations and laws and prescriptions and policemen and guards. And who's going to guard the guards? And who's going to look after Big Brother to be sure that he doesn't do something stupid? No go. Supposing I get annoyed with somebody in the audience, and I'm going to throw this ashtray up. But I don't want to hit my friend sitting next to that person. I want to be absolutely sure this ashtray hits that individual. And so I don't trust myself to throw it. I have to carry it along and be sure I hit that person on the head. See, I don't throw it because I can't let go of it. To throw it, I must let go of it. To live, I must have faith. I must trust myself to the totally unknown. I must trust myself to a nature which doesn't have a boss because a boss is a system of mistrust.